Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. My name is Eric Armstrong, and with me here today is Phil Thompson. Hi, Phil. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. Um, so we're here today to talk about another consonant sound. Uh, for those of you who are new to Glossonomia, what we do is every week we talk about a vowel or a consonant of English, and we alternate. So this week is a consonant week. Next week, we'll do a vowel. So we've been working our way through the sounds of English, and this week we're, we're in the realm of fricative sounds, sounds that are made with kind of a, a noisy, turbulent, fricative action inside the mouth. And we have decided to work on a pair of consonants, the S and Z sounds, or S and Z. Um, and usually what we do is we start off by talking a little bit about how those sounds are made. So, yeah. Phil, will you tell us a little bit about what's going on in the mouth? Absolutely. So, uh, all of these sounds that we're dealing with are dealing with an outflow of air. And uh, the two versions we've got today are, as we've heard before, a voiced and an unvoiced version. Let me start with the unvoiced version. We have a flow of air going out down the center of the mouth. And essentially, that flow is being interrupted by the channeling and raising of the tongue tip. Uh, the sides of the tongue are sealing off the airflow, so everything's going down the middle. And then at some point along the alveolar ridge, a little opening is made, a very little opening. And the air shooting through that gets its turbulence and smashes into the teeth and cascades around. So the reason I'm being a little bit cagey about this is that there are a lot of varieties of where the tip of the tongue is and which part of the tongue is really making that opening, uh, which direction it's pointing. But essentially, a little hole and air flowing through it produces the turbulence. And the voiced form of that is essentially the same thing but with the voicing. Although certainly some people will say that there's a, a further difference between their phoneme and z in terms of articulation, in terms of force and energy. But we've already noted before that there are some differences in force of airflow between the voiced and unvoiced versions of fricatives already. Uh, you don't need to do as much turbulence, perhaps, if you've got the voice, or if you're voicing, the air isn't flowing quite as fast. There, there is an interesting thing that uh, um, I'm just remembering from conversations with speech-language pathologists that one of the things they do to assess um, sort of a quick and dirty assessment of people's voices is what they call an S-Z ratio. Mm -hmm. Do you know about this, Phil? Uh, yeah, I, I actually remembered this from uh, my beginning graduate student uh, diagnostic tape. I think I probably have it somewhere here. Uh, no one will ever hear it. Uh, the... Essentially, uh, if your vocal folds are coming together in a regular periodic way and in those interrupted pulses of voice, you're not getting a lot of air flowing out, then mm -hmm. theoretically you should be slowing down the airflow. So I could probably so make an ah for longer than I could just breathe out because mm. there's something holding it back. 
but if my voicing is in some way failing is the word that's coming to mind. It's a terrible word. If I'm not fully closing and there's lots of extra air flowing out, then it will I'll dissipate my air faster. And so that could be the distinction. And frankly, I don't actually know the reasons behind why s and z are being used, but it does make some logical sense that the z would be more sustainable than the s if you're not doing breathy voice or but the, the, the thing that was very interesting to me, I had a chat with uh, Joanna Kasdan, who's one of the speech-language pathologists who's part of VASTA mm -hmm. and very connected. She was explaining to me that the ratio that one looks for is actually very close to 1, that the S and Z should essentially be uh, essentially this close to the same length. If one or the other is significantly longer, then it points to a problem. Well, um, and that, that there's something about the nature of Z that it should um, be su sustainable as easily mm -hmm. as S is sustainable. Um, and that there's some, perhaps something about the laxness of the voiced uh, fricative that's a little bit m more relaxed and so that that counterbalances the action but of the vocal folds. I, yeah, I suspect that the distinction you'd hear, if, if what you're searching for is something amiss in, in phonation, then having a very different z from s is, is to detect, what you're looking for is whether or not there's something going funny with the phonation. So mm -hmm. that does make sense, that if you had a, a very short z, not quite sure how that would happen, but I can, uh, I, I can imagine that it would be lots of extra air flowing out. Yes, right. If you had a, a, a chink, right, so mm -hmm. there's a gap between your vocal folds, and so you're wasting more air, then you, you would, your, F, your Z would not last as long as your S. Um, and similarly, if you have a hypertension in your vocal folds, mm -hmm. Um, not that you have high blood pressure in your vocal folds, but they're hyper They're very, very yes, really adducted. Um, then uh, you might similarly um, have have uh, a, a Z that would be much, much, much longer than your S. Um, so uh, it's a it's an interesting little diagnostic. Uh, yet another digression. We we're only what three minutes into well, our conversation. I'm going to double down here and give another <laughs> digression. Um, what am I? Uh, favorite little uh, meditative breathing exercises is to use an S on exhalation uh, mm. because it, it generally tends to slow down the airflow because it's a narrow aperture. It can be done in a very relaxed way. And so as a sort of meditative technique of slowing down exhalation, putting an S on it really, to me, really helps. It's a simple thing to do. Uh, not that slowing down respiration is a goal for voice necessarily. Uh, mm. It rather it could be a very useful way thing to do for voice, but not necessarily in this particular way. Uh, <laughs> uh, in fact, by slowing down the airflow with the S, you're not really slowing down the airflow with your respiratory muscles as much. Mm. However, as a relaxing technique, it, it, I find it really, really calming. Mm. Um, Sometimes when I talk to colleagues about uh, problems that they hear in actors' voices, 
they will say, oh, that actor's so sibilant. Can you fix them? Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, this always gets my hackles up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, I thought maybe you could just explain to for us what, what, what do we mean by sibilance? Yeah, I wish that I had looked up the etymology of this word because a, a sibilant essentially means essie. Yeah, and hissy. Yeah, uh, so that's what the sound is. Uh, so it, to me, it does sound an awful lot like saying that that water is very wet. Right. However, I, if that's what the characteristic is, you could say that there is more or less of that characteristic. That's certainly possible to say something is very sibilant or not very sibilant. Right, and so we have terms like hypersibilant and hyposibilant, yeah. which is a way of saying that the S is either high-pitched or low-pitched. Hyper is high-pitched and hypo is low-pitched. Um, and th those are uh, helpful terms. Um, I think part of the reason is that because of the broadband nature of S, that it's kind of a noise that uh, has ver can have some frequencies that are quite low and quite mm -hmm. high. It's like a, a white noise kind of turbulence um, that it carries very well. I mean, there's a very good reason why the the neighbor of S is used to quiet people down. Yeah, is that it covers up people. Uh, I actually had a French teacher who instead of saying sh, he said s to quiet us down. Well, that's what I say uh, to my dog. It it works pretty well. Uh, oh, really? Uh, actually, much watch Caesar Milan. <laughs> yes, I'm sure I stole it from him. Uh, I, so, S's and oh yeah, this is what I wanted to say. Uh, you know, the word whisper, or if you want to pronounce it based on our last consonant, whisper, uh, it is onomatopoeia, isn't it? And so, mm. when you hear people whispering, you're hearing essentially the sibilance because that's carrying over that distance. Uh, that may be the only thing reaching your ears from the conversation, but you can still hear it. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, the, the I guess the next thing to talk about is what what you talked a little bit in your description of how it was made, yeah. um, uh, and to talk about um, how the tongue might be engaged or, or not engaged. Um, uh, I, I, I don't think we actually gave it its fancy scientific name, did we, at, at the start of this conversation? Um, no. That it is an a, a alveolar fricative, right? Yeah. That's the fancy voiced, voiceless alveolar well, fricative. And this is worth saying that this is where our terms, to a certain degree, break down. That we, mm. we describe sounds in terms, first of all, in terms of the, the mechanism of the airstream. All of these sounds have been pulmonic. They come from the lungs. Uh, we can talk about the place and the manner of articulation. And manner being fricative doesn't fully describe these sounds. They're also sibilant. Uh, you could have a non-sibilant fricative. Uh, v is a non-sibilant fricative, and it's not just because of the placement. It's because of that hissing sound. Uh, by the way, I did, while we were talking, check the etymology at etym online. Uh, the, the word sibilant comes from the Latin sibilantum, uh, meaning hiss or whistle. So it's, it's that simple. So, yeah, the, the 
sibilant quality is distinct in a way from the plates. Uh, we describe it as an alveolar, an unvoiced, the one that we're talking about right now, an unvoiced alveolar fricative. But there's also something else happening there, I, I would say. There's an, another dimension that isn't in that description. And part of it is the sibilance, part of it is that particular hissy sound. But another thing that's not included in the description is in order to make that sound in that way, you have to do some sort of channeling of the tongue. You need to curl it a little bit to make a mm. little hole there. And the shape and size of that hole, in addition to the place of that hole, makes a, a big difference in the sound. So the, that hole is going to be made by a portion of the tongue. And in some instances, in some speakers, it's made with the blade of the tongue. Mm -hmm. And in other speakers, it's made with the apex or the front edge of the tongue. Yeah. Um, and in some speakers, they do both in different contexts. Yeah. Um, I have uh, certainly a number of s uh, students who will do it with uh, the, the blade, a, what we call a laminal uh, articulation in every instance. But then I'll say, well, what about when you say stop? And when it's in a consonant cluster where the consonant that follows is an alveolar consonant, they're more likely to use an apical, the front yeah. edge of the tongue. And that makes to make that common S. sense. Yeah, that we're anticipating where we're going next, don't we? Yeah. So uh, that, that's certainly part of that recipe of, uh, of what makes an S. And uh, I think many people are very unaware of the fact that uh, they, mu they might have a different way of making an S than the person sitting next to them. Well, I, I have a story to that end. Uh, I tell a lot of these stories, which I, I, I know that my teacher, Dudley Knight, uh, listens to this, and I think I must be confessing piecemeal that I wasn't paying much attention uh, because I, I have all these realizations about things that I, I misunderstood at the time and then later figured out. I, uh, I'm sure that Dudley taught the variations in tongue position, but the only thing that stuck with me was the way that I do it with my tongue tip up. And mm. I went forward into the world and taught that as the only possibility. And then I had a brave student who said, you know what, you're wrong. I'm, I'm making it with my tongue tip down. So explain that. Which, of course, then sent me to the books to try and figure things out that I hadn't figured out before. And, and then I was in an interesting position. Rather than being prescriptive, uh, I had to then make an agreement or uh, have a discussion with this student about what articulation really worked best and what what was valuable for him. And so since that time, I've I've done a little survey in class, and I'd say the numbers have been going down for the tongue tip up, and more and more of my students have their tongue tips down. Hmm. I, I would class in that group the there are probably 20% who say my tongue tip is in the middle because in that instance they're really using the, the blade of the tongue to make the hole, but they don't perceive the tongue tip is going particularly down. So right. the difference is between apical and laminal, between the tip of the tongue and the blade of the tongue. And so tongue in the m tip in the middle and tip down are both laminal. 
Yeah, I, th I think part of the problem there can be that if people make their articulation of S in the sort of in the exploratory phase where they're trying to figure out, well, how do I do it? If they do it with their mouth really quite closed, mm -hmm. then the difference between laminal and apical is very subtle. Uh, if you ask people to try to do their S with their jaw more dropped, more relaxed open, then they're going to have to make a, a bigger gesture. And the, the real laminal people will still keep their tongue and fit down, whereas um, the people who do both will probably go for the apical because it's such a stretch to do it. Yeah, that does uh, that does match my experience as well. And um, sorry, um, I, w I was going to say that my my experience is is very similar in in uh, polling students on who does what. Um, that at the moment it's about fifty fifty, I find. Um, and my experience was similar too, in that many I I had many different voice and speech teachers tell me that S should be made with the uh, in an apical kind of way with the front front of the tongue rather than with the blade of the tongue and I'd never heard of that before until a student said you're full of it and and, uh, and I have to say at this so point that I am not claiming that Dudley told me that only that that's <laughs> what I took away uh, <laughs> well certainly many of my teachers told me absolutely that that was the correct way to do it and I was told in a very pre prescriptive manner that other ways were wrong and the, the argument for that prescriptive uh, teaching, I think, lies in this idea that there might be some greater effectiveness to being able to articulate consonant clusters that are on the alveolar ridge. If you're already doing S well, with your the front of your tongue, perhaps it would be quicker. To go back but, to this, uh, this student... Nobody can tell. The, the student who uh, taught me about this distinction, I guess... Uh, I said to him, well, you should just do one or the other and just figure it out. I essentially left it all on him. And he decided that he was going to try to do the tongue tip up because that was new for him. I think that was a good choice, and now I give that advice, uh, that if you can't do it one way, you should try and do it the other. And what he reported to me was that he found that in that adjustment, he was opening his jaw more, his tongue was more released. He found it actually easier to do other articulations from having made that adjustment. So that's mm. a, a one-man anecdotal evidence there, so that's not really worth much. Uh, but I do think just in the exploring of it, a student ca can really find a lot of freedom. I, I would like to write on your coattails a bit there about this idea of try, trying something new can lead you to a bit more um, potential. Um, that in my own experience that uh, I do have quite a bit of uh, high-pitched S in certain circumstances and uh, want finding that because my own native articulation is with the front edge of my tongue, doing the unfamiliar thing is requires that much more attention that uh, it makes it easier for me to make a, you know a less sibilant, less high-pitched S, and uh, that was very uh, uh, helpful for me, particularly in in addressing a problem with uh, whistling S. So 
Um, I, I advocated for people to, you know, do the opposite thing is a way of just attending to your ass. And I have see whether it helps. I've certainly heard from people out there doing voiceover that engineers will actually give this advice that your ass is too bright. It's we're having a problem with it so that I don't have to go through and fix all your S's in post-production, can you put the tip, tip of your tongue down? So that doesn't mean necessarily that a laminal S is lower in pitch. It just means that if you're used to the tongue tip up S, the change might produce that effect. Right, right. So um, when, when I teach S, I do this thing where I use a metaphor to talk about the process of making an S. And um, I, I found it helpful to address a number of aspects of the S that you've, you've already kind of outlined. Um, and basically, the metaphor is the idea of when you're watering your garden and you have your garden hose and you stick your thumb over the end of the water uh, coming out of the hose, you make sort of a jet of water by doing that. And that is similar to what's going on when you make the S, that the water is a metaphor for the, the airstream. And the, the constriction of the airstream is the thumb over the end of the, the garden hose. And that serves as sort of like the gum ridge and your teeth. And uh, uh, the pressure of the water coming through the, um, the hose is uh, is part of the, the equation. So if you're going to play with your S, you can play with some of these variabilities. So the first one, of course, is the size of the hose. So if you had a larger garden hose or a smaller thumb, perhaps, uh, you would think that the, the amount of water flowing through would slow down. So basically what I suggest is if you make an S and you try to relax your tongue to make the groove wider, what typ typically this will do is it'll slow down the flow of air and it'll make the S drop in pitch. So relaxing your tongue will make the, the groove widen and the, mm -hmm. the sound of the pitch of the S will, will lower. And uh, it sounds like there are two things going on here. One is the, the speed and pressure, and the other is the, the shape of the opening, and those are correlated. Uh, we can, though, adjust the pressure, because it's a pulmonic sound, separately. So you could just turn down the, <laughs> the nozzle a little bit. I don't know what the, the part that sticks out of the, the tap. wall. The tap, there we go. Turn down the tap, yes. Yes, yeah. that's, that's step three, is to, to adjust the water pressure, um, mm -hmm. to lower that a little bit. Um, the, the, that one, there's always a bit of a caveat, because uh, when I, I had a teacher very early on who told me that she was a little bit concerned about my S, and I said, well, what should I do? And she said, well, just do less of an S. And I said, well, what would that sound like? And she went, well, instead of seven swans swam swiftly and silently, you should say, seven wands swam swiftly and silently. At which point my inner voice said, she's crazy. I'm <laughs> never going to do that. 
uh, <laughs> I think her intent <laughs> was to do uh, something more subtle than what she modeled for me. Um, but <laughs> uh, it's it's always made me laugh the thought of that. I mean, I do I do think there is in the in the kernel of that something. Sometimes we overshoot our our adjustment in order to. Uh, to accommodate backsliding. Sure. Or, or even as a practice to say, Yavin Thwan swam swiftly and silently. That would probably make me giggle too much. But to, to say, now I'll reinsert 30% of what I was doing yes. before. I, I, I can see that. Yes. I think that was her intent, but it, it sort of backfired on me, unfortunately. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the final part of it is adjusting the the thumb position, where the angle of attack, if you will. And for me, I like to imagine that I'm aiming a hose, sort of the narrow spot where my tongue is grooved, at different parts of the upper surface of the roof of my mouth. So I'll start with my, where, where my, I feel my S hitting the roof of my mouth, which is a spot behind my upper front teeth. And then I'll try to somehow adjust my tongue so the angle of attack will slowly slide forward until it starts to hit the top surface of my teeth. And then I'll slowly angle it further down to the front edge of my teeth. And then I'll go back up and take it even further back. So you end up with a sound that sort of goes Well, I guess I have to add in a fourth, even though this overlaps quite a bit, and that is the the place of production as well. Mm. So that, uh, again, we're making a little hole, and we can change the sort of angle of that hole. I, I totally get that image of pointing the stream up or down. We can change the how constricted or unconstricted it is, how much thumb we're putting over it. Uh, and in that way, changing the shape of it as well, whether it's wide mm-hmm. or narrow. And then also, we could make that closure further forward and further back, more towards or more towards sh. Yes. So all these factors overlap to a certain degree. They do, don't they? And yet, teeny, 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 tiny adjustments make big, big effects because this, I guess we haven't talked about the acoustics of this sound yet, have we? Uh, how high-pitched it is. Do you think that's a useful segue? Sure. Because I think that what we're adjusting when we're adjusting these articulatory differences is that we're adjusting the acoustic results. Uh, we're And what we're adjusting, really, for the most part, is the pitch of the sound. Uh, the S sound is the highest pitch speech sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and... What did we say? We did some research on this. The uh, the peak is somewhere around 7,000. What is that? Kilohertz? Hertz. Hertz. I think that's right. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm suddenly second-guessing myself. but It's going to be Hertz. Yeah. So, yeah, that that pitch is different than the other sounds of speech in that it's the highest. Uh, Also, we can hear, as we said before, uh, it carries quite far. So we can also hear very subtle distinctions in those sounds, that a little bit higher pitched, a little bit more unperiodicity, a little bit more chaos in the sound, teeny, teeny adjustments in what is essentially a noise signal. 
we can really detect those differences. Sure. So in the International Phonetic Alphabet, which we refer to always on this show, um, S is represented by the letter S. Hey, um, Eric, can I go back a step please. before we go into the symbols? Let's back up. There, there's another thing about articulation that I, I have a personal story about, and that is jaw position. Mm. I, I, I went to the dentist. I got a crown, and he fit it beautifully so that when I closed my mouth, everything fit together. Then I went off to teach and started speaking and noticed that on every S, my jaw moved slightly forward and clicked two bits of tooth together. So I was catching my new crown on every S, <laughs> which drove me mad and drove me back to the dentist almost immediately. Uh, he burnished it down so that it didn't click anymore. Uh, but And he also then talks about it every time I go in. But he detected in this thing that I do a slight movement forward of my jaw on every S. Uh, it is true that S is one of the sounds in English that we generally close our jaws for. So that was certainly happening. But what was also happening was this little click, little movement forward. And I'm sure you can imagine it was entirely unpleasant. The, the, that aspect of thrusting your chin forwards ever so slightly is one of the factors that uh, most people don't recognize about their own S. And it's one of the things that I notice in people with more hi hyper-sibilant, higher-pitched S's, that they are more likely to have more of a, a sort of aligning of the lower teeth with the upper teeth. And that must have something to do with the turbulence pattern. Um, yeah. And we could just talk briefly about this idea of turbulence pattern, that wh what happens is um, the air goes through this narrowing, and then it makes sort of like a billow of air. If you can imagine water going over the waterfall, it falls perfectly in a smooth <laughs> water going over the edge, and then it hits the ground, and we get this kind of big splash of cloud of, of spray. Similarly, once the, the air passes your, your teeth and your lower lip, we get this big sort of cloud of spray of turbulence. Um, one of the fun things that we often do with consonants is we ask people to inhale their consonant. So if you inhale an S, you don't get the same kind of sound that you get on an exhale. Uh, because the narrowing works differently and the turbulence is happening on the inside of your mouth. And so though you can feel where the constriction is, the sound is radically different yeah. because of that shape. And um, it, it's worth noting that everybody's architecture is different. You know, if it's the waterfall landing on the rocks, the rocks are <laughs> different in every mouth. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did overhear my daughter once saying to a friend, uh, yeah, I, I make my S off to the side, but when my front teeth come in, I'll be moving it to the middle. So she had absorbed a little too much of this speech stuff. <laughs> but uh, you bring up a good point uh, that uh, people who have missing teeth, who have different dentition, they have a large gap in the front, uh, may find that they make their S in a radically different way. I had a student who really made her S completely over to one side, and that is uh, an articulation that she learned when she was missing a tooth, and sh her tooth came in, and she kept doing it the way she'd, mm -hmm. 
she'd adjusted. So that's something we always have to look out for too. And did you recommend that she try art shifting that articulation? Um, her her S was quite hyposibilant. It was very low. So we were going to play around with her S anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and so by adjusting it back to the middle, she found that she could rapidly uh, bring her S back into what she perceived as more normal. And uh, it ultimately wasn't a difficult change for her to undertake. Are we jumping the gun to talk about that lovely term you just used, hyposibilant? Um, well, I, I guess I threw that in a little earlier, hyper and hypo, um, that hyper is the high-pitched and hyposibilant is the low. Um, I suppose the most extreme kind of hypersibilant would be sort of a whistly S. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that the if uh, you use that idea of kind of the turbulence makes a non-periodic kind of quality. Um, uh, sometimes when it gets hypersibilant, it becomes uh, almost too narrow a band. Um, now, uh, I, I like to avoid too much terminology, and so um, I talk to people about having a you know more relaxed S or mm -hmm. uh, tightness in their S. Unfortunately, I told a, a student um, that she had a a very tight S, <laughs> and uh, to get guffaws and gales of laughter, which I had no idea what was going on. I, she has a very tight S. It's it's quite nice, but and the more I went on about her tight S, the worse it got. And finally, they said a tight S, and it finally dawned on me. It's so important for geeks to be in the world to entertain others. So. Yes, yes. So I tell that story every year when I do S sounds. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, I suppose it's better than having a loose S. Um, so, or a fat uh, one. Yes. Well, it so. is. Uh, <laughs> let me jump in and say that we, we do have a lot of terms. People talk about having a slushy S. And mm. the, the, the danger, of course, is that we'll come up with... Uh, emotionally loaded words. You have a sharp, precise S. Oh, you have kind of a lax, fat, lazy S. Uh, and we could invert those terms and say, you have a brittle S. But this guy over here has a, a soft S. And so, depending on which direction we want to aim people, <laughs> we, could, we could make fun of any aspect <laughs> of their speech, frankly. And yes. so, I, I think it, we betray our prejudices a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I like how uh, when you look at uh, Laban effort shapes, that they've chosen words that are supposed to be non-judgmental. And mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've seen people try to use those kinds of bits of language to uh, talk about speech so that it's a little bit less judgmental. It's not necessarily easy to do to uh, apply those terms, but that, yeah. that kind of idea can be very helpful. Um, so, do we need to talk about Z other than the fact that it tends to be a bit more lax? Um, I, it, the, as long the as actions are pretty Z. much the same. Uh, oh yeah, mm. <laughs> let's talk about that briefly. Uh, it, yeah, there is a history behind it, and I guess that uh, we're jumping the gun into uh, letter history. But uh, the calling the Z letter Z 
is something that English and Canadian speakers do, and American speakers tend to say Z. Uh, the Z name is the older one, and the Z one is, I think you said 17th century? That's what Wikipedia says. Uh, and I would have to say that makes a lot of sense, that uh, it's a sort of a housekeeping to make all as many letter sounds the same as possible, so you can say B, C, D, Z, no problem. Although Y, right. S, and F are a different way, I don't understand. Uh, yes. But Z is an outlier, and so uh, it's a simplification process. Uh, I, I can make it sound positive or negative, depending on whether you're anglophilic or not. Well, I, I worked in the U.S. for six years, and so I had to switch over to saying Z. And uh, both of my children were born in the U.S. Ben learned his alphabet in the U.S., so learned Z initially. Um, Noah learned his alphabet in Canada, but um, I believe he says Z. Um, Noah, they both know about Z, but uh, they they typically only get challenged on it by adults. The kids don't really care. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it it did take some time for me to switch to say Z, um, and then it took some time for me to switch back. But now I'm back. Uh, what is the French letter name? Z. Yeah. Uh, and um, it does come from Old French in into English. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and it's it's also, you know, South Africa and uh, New Zealand and Australia. Most other Englishes say Z as well. I suppose we uh, should explain that, that, that the reason it's not New Zealand is that it's a different Z in right. New Zealand. Um, Zealand being a place in, in I don't know. Uh, so in does it have anything to do with zeal, one's inner zeal for... Or God or something like I that? Don't, I don't think so. Uh, but again, all, all I know is that it's not the same. We don't need to call it Zedland. It's, right. it's not that kind of Z. Though I was surprised to hear people pronounce zebra as zebra. Um, to me, that sounded like they were saying Zed-bra, zebra. I remember um, that as a uh, child in London, the, the crosswalks were always zebra crossings because they were striped like a, like a zebra. I didn't retain that although I did call them zebra crossings for way too long when I came back to the States. And did you associate zebra crossings with zebras? No, no, not at all. I would say, oh, look, Mommy, it's a zebra. <laughs> Let's go through the zebra crossing. It was, uh, it was a unique, uh, a separate word. Right, right. Uh, okay, well, I guess since we've started to talk about symbols, yeah. um, uh, the, the history of S... Um, comes to us from, well, if we go far enough back, we get to this thing called Proto-Semitic. Mm -hmm. And that, that at this point, I think the sound is really more of a sh sound. And uh, the shape was sort of what looks kind of like a rounded W, kind of bum shape. Mm -hmm. um, the Phoenicians then made that a sharp-angled W shape. Um, the Etruscans made their S shape sort of like an angular three. Um, um, if you imagined an M or a W on its side, yeah. um, that would be um, the Etruscan S. Um, the uh, 
Greeks made the sigma, which looks like a capital M leaning on its, if you tilt it to the left, rotate mm -hmm. it counterclockwise, you get a, a, a Greek sigma. Um, and it's really from there that the, the English Latinate S comes from, right? Yeah, the you Romans sort of turn sigma into S. Yeah, you can sort of add an extra line to it and to, uh, make it more, more like an S. There's uh, th this original Semitic uh, thing went into then Hebrew in the shin. So if you've ever played with a dreidel, the shin is one of the letters on there. But it's more loopy. I have to say that I have a, a sort of childhood thought of S being pictographic just because mm. it's snake-like. And right. the associations between the sound of snake and the hiss of a snake uh, just made perfect sense to me. And I think I must have gotten that out of a children's book. But I don't think that there's any association in the history of the letter. I, I don't believe there is either, but uh, it's certainly, uh, I, I think if you ask many people what, what is it a pictograph of, they would say of a snake, uh, because so many of those uh, abecedarian books yeah. uh, have used a snake as the rep representation of it. Now, uh, uh, about sigma, there are two lowercase sigmas, uh, the, the one in initial positions and the one in final positions in Greek. Uh, the, the initial one, I always think, looks like a partridge. It's sort of a round symbol with a line pointing to the right on top of it. Uh, and then the other one, at the sigma that comes at the end of a word, is a C with a little tail on it, you could say. And that one looks a little bit more like the S symbol that, that we are familiar with. Right. So perhaps it's more out of that, you know, Typographically, it, it derives from that shape more. Yeah, I mean, the, w it is absolutely true that we see this S in Latin writing, the, the curvy S. Mm -hmm. uh, you need only look at the uh, Roman insignia to see that S at the beginning of it. Uh, and then it came into English. What's interesting, this might be a good place to talk about the minuscule S, the two versions. Again, there was a final word form of S, which is the one that we're familiar with. And then an initial or medial one that was this sort of long, slightly tilted S, a sort of skinny, lengthened S that looks, f for me, and I'm sure for a lot of people, like an F. Yes, very much like an F. And we did, um, and in fact, it has a little dot on the left-hand side of that vertical stroke that almost looks like the crossbar of an F. Yeah. So that that um, you know that comes from handwriting with a quill, and with a quill to make a long stroke like that's very easy. S in English is the most common letter of the alphabet, and um, uh, it is. Uh, very easy with a quill pen to make a long stroke like that. Uh, unfortunately, typographically, it looks so much like an F that uh, it makes words with Fs in them and Ss in them look extremely uh, similar. It makes them fuckfect. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, now, Wikipedia says that that final S really didn't show up in... Uh, 
until after the medieval period that they used the long s in all Exclusively. settings and yeah. and then the the small s that we're familiar with appeared at the ends of words and then eventually because of that confusion it crept into all settings so uh, uh that that's kind of an interesting um history of that sound another way that uh, we uh, might see that that long s uh Persisting, I guess is the word I want, is in German the SZ, uh, which is really an SZ combination, uh, has sort of mushed together to make a new symbol that looks like a sort of a tall script beta. Uh, but that is essentially that, that long effish S connected to a Z symbol. So um, I think that now that we know a little bit about the shape of the, mm -hmm. the and the history of those symbols, let's go back to S and Z in the IPA and talk a bit about diacritics. Oh, actually, there are. You know, we didn't say much about the symbol for. Oh Z. yeah, I because I didn't research that, but you did. So uh, yeah, tell us I, about did, I did. Z Z. I took a little look and I realized that actually there wasn't much there, and that is that uh, the Greek letter Zeta uh, stuck around in. English, it was it was not originally used in English at all because it was unambiguous that medial s was a voiced form, and that final s and initial s were unvoiced forms, and so in a word like measure, there was no need to uh, actually. Sorry, that's yod coalescence. So, <laughs> uh, busy is a better example. Uh, that s was always pronounced as z, uh, but then there was some confusion when Norman words came in whether they would be pronounced s or z. And so that predictability broke down, and so they used this zeta symbol, which the Romans had kept from Greek but didn't really use very much. Uh, so it was placed at the end of the alphabet for that reason, that it was fairly unuseful. It, w it didn't come up very much in, in Latin. In fact, in, in English, in Lear, Kent calls... Oswald, thou Horson Zed, thou unnecessary letter. Uh, so this idea of it being a sort of a leftover, not very useful symbol was present at that time. So the Zeta symbol has a little bit of a tail at the bottom, uh, and that disappeared as we moved forward. Uh, but generally speaking, it stayed as a Z when it was needed, uh, more modern words like jazz and so forth, uh, more onomatopoetic words with the zippy Z or exotic words from other languages, those kept the Z spelling just to describe, th th in a way, to be more phonetic. Mm. Uh, so there was no confusion about whether it was Z or Z. I think that's all the research that I've got on that. Right. We, we talked quite a lot about the letter C in our, uh, our podcast about the K sound. Mm -hmm. um, so if people are interested in the letter C, I would refer you to that podcast because C is a very important uh, spelling, usually with a vowel after it, uh, for the S sound. Um, there are many, many words. And I, I seem to recall... I, am I right in this that most C spellings that have S pronunciations are before E and I cease 
I didn't re-research this, so I have only leftover <laughs> impressions of this. But certainly, that C pronunciation as s has been in English for quite mm -hmm. some time. Yes, definitely. Um, so, uh, so shall we go back to diacritics now? Let's do it. Uh, finally, I get to it. Um, that uh, when dis differentiating different S's, sometimes a little diacritic can be helpful. Um, we we haven't really talked much about diacritics yet on glossonomia. So, um, quick overview, Phil. What's a diacritic? Uh, diacritic is uh, what you need after the phonemic principle of the IPA gives out on you. That is to say that uh, every sound has a symbol. That it, and by every sound, the IPA means every sound that can distinguish one word from another. So a separate phoneme has a separate symbol. But that doesn't always do the trick because uh, there's a potential for a difference in pronunciation that doesn't make a new meaning, just a new variation or allophone of that sound. And so diacritics come to the rescue to make subtle gradations to mark the gray areas in between one sound and another. And they tend to be smaller symbols added on, superscript, subscript, right afterwards, sometimes plastered straight on top of the other symbol. Um, so the, f the first one would be the dental uh, diacritic. And the, the name for the diacritic is called the bridge. Um, to me, it always looks like an unused staple. Yes. If you, you know, you've pushed a staple out of the stapler without actually squishing it. Um, the, the other thing it looks like to me is a lower tooth. Yes, that's... Uh, one of your teeth in your lower... That helps my students, I think. Yes. Uh, and that just sits underneath the symbol, in this case, underneath the S or the Z. And uh, if, if you were making a more dental articulation of an S... And that's the place of uh, articulation, yes. Yes. What, what would that do to the S? Bill? Well, we could just look where there is a dental fricative and say that there's a th sound. So mm. if I move my s towards... I get something in between those two. So, say. Hmm. So often it makes it a, a brighter sound mm -hmm. um, because if it's hitting a harder surface, uh, typically that also raises the pitch of the S. Um, so, uh, and there are a lot of European languages that are, are their primary articulation is dental. That it's as if they're the front edge of their tongue rests against the upper front teeth. So they're more likely to make an articulation of things like T, N, L, and S uh, in a more dental articulation compared to, say, a North American who speaks English natively. They're more likely to make more alveolar kind of articulation. So that can be a very helpful diacritic. And it, it makes some sense. We have in English a dental fricative, and many languages don't. So we make a right. distinction. This, there's a, 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 an even dispersion of sounds at fairly regular distances apart, we could say. Mm. So the, the next one is called apical. That's with the front edge of your tongue. If you, if you needed to differentiate between S made with the front edge of the tongue and S made with the blade of your tongue, we've got two different diacritics. Now, um, the language Basque, when that that region of northern Spain, just near the French border, um, 
Wikipedia claims that they have two S's, one in their spelling represented by S and one in their spelling represented by Z, uh, one of which is apical and one of which is laminal, um, the, made with the blades. So uh, apparently the, they make a, a higher-pitched S in the apical slot and a slightly lower-pitched S in the laminal slot, um, but they're both essentially S's, and I suspect that most English speakers wouldn't notice the difference. And these are both unvoiced for us? They are both unvoiced. And, and not being familiar with that, I, I can't really say I, I can say that it's remarkable to me how very subtle distinctions to my ear could make a distinction for another speaker. That there's another example that I ran into, which is the Korean tense S as opposed to the non-tense S. And when I listen to it, the tense S sounds not very tense to me. <laughs> and the non-tense S sounds like not an S at all. Mm. So uh, I think that the, the two words were uh, sal and uh, and uh, I just couldn't even hear the S at all. Uh, <laughs> if you want to look for uh, Peter Latifogut's uh, course in phonetics online, you can listen to a distinction between those two. And mm. again, there may be an underlying articulation there that isn't making much acoustic distinction, uh, but, but it may it's likely, in fact, that as a, not a speaker of that language, I just cannot distinguish. I can try to distinguish, but it's very difficult. Right. So the diacritic symbols, um, the apical one is basically the opposite of the dental one. So if you imagine that little tooth shape, you turn it upside down, so it's sort of the bottom of a box. It always looks a little bit like a litter box <laughs> to me, a cat litter box from the side. Uh, underneath the letter, um, and the laminal symbol is a box. So uh, in some fonts, it's really a square that sits underneath, and in other fonts, it's more of a rectangle, like we've taken the bridge, we've superimposed the two bridges on top of each other, um, so that it's a, more of a, a horizontal rectangle. And, and I find myself using these quite a bit uh, when I'm auditioning actors. I if I notice their S in a way that makes me concerned that I might not be able to help them, I make a little notation. And so mm. there's another symbol which I, I often use, which is the asterisk, which is used to say, I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> or there's no symbol for right, this, but right. there's something going on. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, well... Uh, oh, there's another um, set of diacritics that I just realized... Uh, that are often of use when talking about particularly s and z, and that is the voicing or devoicing symbol. So yes. I could put a devoicing symbol underneath s. So if I said uh, buzz, but I devoiced it a little buzz. In fact, you could go so far as to have a partial initial devoicing or a partial final devoicing with a little parenthesis. This is in the uh, disordered speech symbols. Uh, the extended exactly. idea. So, but it is quite true that very often in casual speech, uh, English speakers will slightly devoice a final z, the boys. Usually at the end of an utterance, yeah. right? So if I'm saying uh, um, 
there's a nice buzz to the way you say that, you're likely to have a good zzz sound on buzz, but the way you say that has a nice buzz is likely to de-voice that final Z or Z. And that's a form um, of lenition, right? That's just running out of steam. It is, yes. Is it? Um, and there are speech teachers who are adamant that you must learn to n not have any lenition on the ends of your expression, so you must buzz your way to the ends of each line. You know, it, it's a matter of, of producing useful sound, what's going to be perceived. And so, yeah, I absolutely think that you should be able to do that anytime. You should be able to zzz all the way to the end. Uh, and I yes, and the reason why people don't think you're talking about a bus when you do that is that because uh, the zzz lengthens the vowel. So buzz is different from bus because it's got a much longer vowel. Exactly. Very often we're inferring final consonants based on the effect on the vowel that precedes them. Uh, there's another symbol, actually, another diacritic symbol that I that my students will pull out. Uh, when describing one another's speech, we do a little experiment in, in the curriculum. And that is another extended IPA sound, another disordered speech symbol, which is the, it's sort of a chubby arrow pointing upwards under the symbol, which indicates whistling. And mm. I sometimes hear when, in this final lenition buzz, that there may be voicing all the way through, but there's an extra quality of sibilance, a whistliness that even though voicing continues, you can hear an extra little sharp sound. And that I would usually transcribe with that arrow symbol. But that is extremely esoteric and really, they're, they're in the extended IPA for a reason. Only if you really need to use that symbol should you pull it out. Right. Um, to go back, we talked about the vo voicing and, and devoicing diacritics. To voice a symbol, you put a little V mm -hmm. underneath, and to devoice, you put a little circle or ring underneath the symbol. So typically, you put the devoicing underneath the voiced symbol and the voicing underneath the voiceless. Symbol. And and the fact of the matter is that a devoiced z is a s and a voiced s is a z. And I, I generally speaking. Uh, am over precise about this and say, well, a devoiced z and a voiced s are almost together. So we're, we're using the symbols to make four gradations there between them. But right. really, that's over precision. Well, I mean, there, there, there is some phonemic things going on, right? When yeah. we talk about buzz at the end, right. you know, that it, it's, it's a Z, it affects the phonology of the word. Right. We're describing what you're, we expect to hear there. So you yeah. can say, he devoiced the Z at the end of buzz, because that's what we expect. That's phonologically, phonemically, what that sound was going to be. That's what it was thought right. of as, what it was intended as, and maybe what it was perceived as even though the realization of it was devoiced. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, um, I don't know whether we should talk very briefly. I mean, S, it's, it's so common in the world's languages. I really couldn't find many, I couldn't find any uh, explanation anywhere about places that lack S. Um, it's such a common sound. Um, so it's 
you know, it's not listed as one of those sounds that don't appear. I went to the uh, the Walls website, yeah. and there are no examples of languages that lack sibilants. Um, we can find languages that lack bilabials, but we can't find ones that lack sibilants. Um, there's one thing that often comes up with ESL speakers, and that's about plurals, the same way that we had uh, ED endings when we talked about the D and T uh, phoneme, the consonants. The When a, a plural follows a voiceless consonant, it's always going to be an S. So uh, uh, cats, right? Cat, the T yeah. is voiceless, so the plural is when it the plural follows a voiced consonant, dogs. like cad, <laughs> dogs, yes, here we go, that's even better, we get a z sound. And similarly, when it follows a vowel, we'll also get a z or z sound. Um, and then the, the one other sort of exception thing is when words end in other sibilant yeah. sounds, like sh or ch or s or x or z, we're going to get the S ending, which is typically is, so we get fishes, mm -hmm. or batches, buses, um, foxes. Uh, there's uh, another step to this is if they, if a, a person's name or, a, I don't know if it applies to place name, but if it's Brutus, uh, we mm. tend to not make an extra syllable after it. So we don't say necessarily Brutus's, but Brutus Harland. Well, I think that may be different in certain contexts. Yes, I, I am right? talking uh, about... Like John Wells's blog, right? He he put apostrophe S after his his name, and not just apostrophe. I, I guess I'm trying to distinguish, too, between the, the printing convention and the pronunciation convention, although we can imagine that if he put an apostrophe S, then he meant the pronunciation Wells's. Uh, some people do make a further distinction and say that Latin-based names do that assimilation. So you would say Brutus, but Wells's. The Joneses, uh, but Poseidon, no, I can't think of another one, and uh, Thetis. Uh, and it, the only reason it... Theseus is... Right, so, but we'd say Theseus... Yeah. Wife, Hippolytus. So we could just be recording some ancient practice or some archaic uh, pronunciation flourish here, but it comes in pretty handy when dealing with Shakespeare, where the rhythmic patterns have in many cases been laid down for us. Uh, the only way to scan it is as Paris rather than Paris's. Right. Okay. Um, can we talk a little bit about uh, what what's sometimes called speech pathology, the kind of errors? You have that whole yes. book of speech errors from long ago. And, um, and uh, the first error that they, they include is the error of completely dropping it. Uh, and right. I think it's worth pointing out that, it, that in Spanish, I, I always worry when I start bringing up Spanish because I imagine my daughter telling me I'm wrong. Uh, but... It's pretty common in the world's Spanish for S's to be dropped. Uh, oh. So instead of como estas, it would be como estas. 
And so I did not know that. Dialect differences in different Spanish speakers, uh, that's one of the features that you would notice is a complete dropping of some S's. So it seems to me that it's harder to drop an S in a Fortis position than a Linus position. So right. uh, those guys are going over there. Uh, and this is o- often marked as a feature of African-American vernacular English is dropping of right. those S's. But nobody who drops a final S is going to uh, drop an initial S. Uh, right. So, so by African-American English, the classic example is baby mama. Yeah. Um, that basically it's babies, my baby's mama, yeah. and the S is dropped by a, basically a rule of African-American vernacular English. And so m- baby mama is what we get. Um, that's, a, that's a classic example of that. Um, then other pathologies are often classified as lisps, um, yeah. which I think uh, m- most of the time when I think of lisps, I think of um, sort of merry melodies, um, Looney Tunes cartoons, where we have Mel Blanc doing some kind of lisp as a means of defining a character quickly. Um, but uh, there are th- three different kinds of lists, mm-hmm. um, and perhaps the first one would be the interdental lisp, where a substitution is happening for S, and the speaker is sticking their tongue between their teeth and making a th sound for S and a th sound for Z or Z. Um, and I, I think there's some association be- with that, with uh, what people call tongue thrust, um, and that, that often is treated by dentists and uh, orthodontists these days. So these sort of barbaric uh, orthodontic uh, appliances, <laughs> little spikes to keep you from poking your tongue too far forward, um, or very least a wire behind the lower front teeth to reduce the, the tendency to thrust the tongue forward. Um, do you know much about tongue thrust? I don't. I certainly have heard the term, and I've heard it, as, as you mentioned, in the context of, of orth- orthodonture. It, it does... It's interesting to me, and I mentioned this when uh, uh, dealing with some other sound, I can't remember now, while well, dealing with the, uh, that there tends to be a gender breakdown, at least in my experience, uh, between people who bring their tongues further forward on some of these sounds and people who don't. So uh, although we don't really hear a th lisp as anything but uh, sort of overdone gay speech uh, thing, it, it, in popular culture at least. Uh, but certainly people do have that sub- complete substitution. So the, the next uh, lisp is the lateral yeah. lisp. And that's the sideways version of it, so that where S and Z get said in a sideways way. So essentially, the groove of the tongue is not happening down the center and of the, the tongue. And the space is opened so that the air can flow out through the sides. And, and right, in a s- similar way to the way L is made. 
And you'll hear this on, on South Park is a good example of mm. the character who does that. Right. Uh, and I don't know, would you count this as a lisp, the articulation of the S further back in the mouth? As a sh? Um, can show, yeah, show sh. more of a, uh, like a, sh, that yeah. short of shound. Uh, I think that's what's called a palatal lisp. There are palatal lisps that are done with tongue tip yeah. down, so we get shed right with tongue tip down, so it's a, a, a true palatal. And then the hypo, um, hypo sibilant S, so the sort of Sean Connery yeah. S. Which we could say is slightly post alveolar as well in terms of its placement. Uh, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you, you bring up Sean Connery that uh, here we are talking about lisps, which we're sort of defining as defective. This my big black book would define these as defective sounds. But it's not defective coming out of Sean Connery. Uh, and it's not defective mm. not just because he's a super wonderful, sexy movie actor, but because it's appropriate for his accent. Um, I don't know that... Everybody would agree with that, um, that it's not necessarily part uh, of his I accent. I didn't mean to say that it was necessary, but just that it's an appropriate outgrowth of his oral posture, that it sort of stands out, mm. uh, that it derives from where how his mouth is, is set for his accent. But no, it's not... And, and the other thing is that his speech is, is other enough from the world in which he works, the world of Hollywood film, yes. that... Adding one other thing that is outside of the norm isn't such a big deal. Um, the um, I, I remember when I was in drama school in London that uh, one of my colleagues insisted that uh, he went through a phase when he was a teenager where he was trying to sound like as many RSC actors as he could. And he found himself aping their S sounds, which he found to be quite hypo very low kind of S. And it wasn't until he got a little bit older that he realized that all of the actors he was copying basically had bad <laughs> dental work and that their, their S's were not something that they wanted to have but something that they couldn't avoid having but, but except because they had bad dental work. And so uh, he eventually stopped that, you know, he thought he thought that there was something going on at the RSC, and actually <laughs> it was just that the actors were older and so therefore had worse That's, that's very much um, like the story of, of Hotspur, and uh, uh, at least as it's claimed in, in Shakespeare, that uh, the accent of his region uh, was a result of people trying to copy his speech defect. Hmm. Uh, I guess we'll deal with that when we deal with R, because I think that's the nature of that. Uh, but other people turn their own perfections to abuse to seem like him. Right. Um, so uh, the one last uh, pathological, outside of typical norms, is the, the, the idea of whistling like the gopher in Winnie yeah. the Pooh. Um, and uh, that uh, that kind of whistling S does happen... Um, it happens to me, as I've mentioned earlier in this podcast, um, because of the bonding that I have on my teeth. It's it's sort of the sharpness of the edge of my teeth, I think, is ultimately what makes it more difficult 
for me, me to avoid this kind of sound. And I particularly struggle with it when I'm lying down. So the story I often tell is that um, it makes for really sexy pillow talk <laughs> uh, to lie back. And, and would you say like that's that. because the whole body of your tongue is further back in your mouth because it's falling backwards? Yeah, it's, a, it's the effect of gravity uh, on sort of the body of my tongue so that it's my, the muscular action of making the tongue seems to involve the front edge of my tongue. Uh, but gravity pulls another part of my tongue down and that redefines the, the angle at, of attack so that it hits right at the edge. And uh, as a former flute player, I know enough about the physics of, uh, of whistles that uh, a, a very narrow stream of air sent across the edge of something yeah. is ultimately what makes a whistle. And so uh, um, if you direct the airstream too much at the edge of your teeth, and I think... Um, for some people with gaps between their front teeth, that can be part of the issue that they get a whistle through the gap um, in the same way that a cr a, you might get a whistle between a crack uh, between a window and the, the, the window frame with wind blowing through it. You get that whistling wind sound. That can actually happen between people, I mean, um, people's teeth. If it does seem to me that a whistle is a slightly different effect than sibilance in that it's a moment of cavity resonance of uh, amplification because a whistle has more pitch quality to it that is to say it's more sonorous more periodic in its vibrations so from any position you could tune the resonance of the chamber in such a way that it's cyclically amplified rather than chaotic it be comes tuned into a whistle. Well, it also has something to do with that turbulence past mm -hmm. the teeth, that if there's too much turbulence, you won't get whistle either. Um, so uh, it's not just the resonance characteristics. Uh, you, you can play a flute badly, and it sounds like you're making all sorts of interesting <laughs> S sounds. Uh, but <laughs> you have to get your embouchure right to actually put the right angle across the at, r at, at literally right angles to make the, at the appropriate whistling So that sound. you're setting up inside of the body of the flute these reflective things get into the right period, yeah? I, uh, I think so. I'm not exactly sure about how that works. So in any case, uh, yeah, embouchure is a great word except that it's enmouthment so that uh, if you had a, the little mouth that you're making with your S is getting your embouchure right on that uh, makes the S different. And I, I don't think that we didn't really talk about the Dutch S, did we, in this? We sort of no, skipped over it. And the reason it comes to me at this moment is that there's a sort of difference in perceived pitch. Uh, and it's a place in which the articulation adjustment produces some acoustic difference that's really hearable. And I, I think we talked about it before we started recording that the Sean Connery Esch and the Dutch Esch seem to be very similar in terms of their uh, their articulation and in their sound. Yeah, it's almost a, sort of a slit S, uh, a flatter articulation, and um, that ultimately makes a lower pitch, 
And I think it changes something about the nature of how much broadband spectrum there is to the S. Um, you know, it, it isn't a full-on sh, or at least not the same sh sound that we have. Dutch speakers have both uh, an S sound and a sh sound, though they don't pair up equally with English. And, uh, I'm sure we can save some of that talk for when we actually deal with that phoneme. But I do find that when I'm making that that position, I'm very close in articulation to where I would make a whistle bass. Yes. And yes. that's why yes. I'm yes. thinking that we could think about this sort of spectrum of place of articulation, but also this hypo-hypersibilance model in terms of pitch. But then whistling seems to throw a, a wrench in the machine because I can be in a position where I'm actually lowering the pitch of the S, but then the whistle comes in and a higher pitch sound comes out of that. So those two things seem to not yes. map completely together. And when I said before that sometimes I'll hear a voiced Z with a sort of whistly quality, I think that that's a similar thing, that sibilance and whistleance are different features. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, so this, I think, uh, kind of our last topic for today is uh, what, I've, what I've written down here is the so-called gay lisp. Um, and, uh, um, you know, the, it's a bit of a misnomer because uh, lisp typically means uh, an articulation that ends up with a hyposibilant, lower-pitched S, and what is typically associated with gay speech, stereotypically associated with gay speech, is a hypersibilant S. Um, and so we get a, uh, uh, a perception of S being made in this kind of narrower um, articulation that leads to a brighter sound that carries more. Um, and uh, there have been a number of studies done about what are these what, what people perceive as gay-sounding speech. Um, it's not so much about identifying gay people by their speech. It's about looking at what society labels as gay-sounding. And so uh, the kind of studies that have been done typically present a bunch of different samples of people speaking, and then they have people uh, rate them on a scale of, of masculinity and effeminateness, and uh, gayer sounding, more straight sounding. I, I think um, that that's a and, and that, that's complicated, isn't I, it? I think that there's a really important distinction here, and and it brings up a larger topic, which I'll try not to go too deeply into. And that is, when we're dealing with language difference, we're dealing with identity. And w when I bring up the topic of gay speech, I'm in danger of offending my gay students by saying that they are identifiable by me by this uh, this feature that they have no control over, um, that I've seen mm. into their secret hearts. And that is, you could imagine any group that's uh, not in the mainstream and that is uh, oppressed by the Marginalized, marginalized in some way. Uh, they're going to be really cautious when I start IDing them. Uh, yes. So, what these studies, these fairly recent studies, are, are, are doing, which I think is really unique and remarkable and great, 
is saying, no, let's not try to correlate gay speech, gay sounds with gayness, uh, how gay a person really is, which is a very peculiar thing that you couldn't really measure. Uh, I guess you either are or you aren't. We'll leave that to Kinsey and not to speech pathologists. Uh, what we're really measuring is the perception of gayness, or effeminacy is another way of thinking about it, uh, although that's fraught as well. The, and that's an important distinction, uh, that we can detect gayness in speech because it's a cultural construct. What we're detecting is our own thoughts about it. We're not detecting the person's identity, we're detecting how we perceive it. Uh, and I think that this this idea of gay speech um, can be helpful to our students just to explore the idea of identity um, and uh, how they how they define themselves. A lot of the literature around gay speech talks about this idea of of performing that one performs one's identity uh, uh, to some degree consciously and some degree un unconsciously. Um, but that frequently that, uh, um, and I, I've spoken to my gay friends and students about this idea that sometimes there's a code shifting that's done in certain contexts where one wants to play at um, this gay identity in a sort of over-the-top kind of way. And these are the kinds of performance features that are part of the costume um, that are used for certain, in certain contexts, certain venues, um, and uh, that that can be part of the work that uh, they do as actors, that the, the characters they're playing, regardless of their own personal performance of straightness or gayness, um, that the, the characters they're, they're playing may yeah. engage in that kind of well, performance. I, too. I think that there's an important word that I, I wanted to bring up, uh, which is uh, shibboleth. Uh, it's it's a relevant word because it actually is phonetically relevant, the difference between shibboleth and sibboleth. Uh, so I suppose I, I should tell the story, although I imagine our listeners might know this already, uh, that uh, the Gileadites uh, and the Ephraimites, Ephraimites uh, were at war. Uh, the Gileadites held the river, and then when the Ephraimites tried to cross, they were asked, pronounce the word shibboleth. And uh, the Ephraimites could not frame to pronounce it correctly, and so they were slain. Something like 2,400 of them were killed because they couldn't pronounce the word right. And so the word shibboleth has come into English as a uh, to describe just that kind of thing, a giveaway. Uh, a particular sound of pronunciation that lets the uh, upper-class ruling mainstream Gileadites detect and therefore slaughter the uh, other sorts, the Ephraimites. And it's sometimes useful for the Ephraimites to be able to know who one another are, and it's sometimes useful for the Gileadites to find the people that they're going to cast out. Uh, you know, the pronunci pronunciation of H or H in Irish speech is another one of these famous shibboleths. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. the, what's interesting to me is that also that I believe the Ephraimites said sibboleth and the 
Gileadites had Shibboleth. So it was sort of a reverse lisp, I guess, uh, that they they couldn't say the sh. I think their their language lacked sh sound so, altogether. Uh, there are in gay speech certain shibboleths, and uh, not particular words, but s and pronunciation s is of s is one of those certainly. Uh, it hmm. it either gives people an excuse to identify somebody, and I guess I didn't tell this story. I told this in our in our pre-podcast talk. I was called in to work with somebody who had an s that that was noticeable. Uh, it was sibilant, it was high-pitched, and there was a lot of sibilance going on. Also, there was a, an amplification system that made it worse. Uh, when I was called in, I listened to the guy, and he he had a little bit of extra sibilance. I had been called in by the producers because it was apparently a big problem for them. Even though when I listened to the show, uh, the actress he was playing against had a much more sibilant S than he did. There are two things that were a problem. One was that he was trying really hard to get it right, and so he was actually exacerbating the problem by increasing the airflow. The other thing that was true is that they thought he was gay. They thought he seemed gay, and the character was not gay for them. So what I had to do to help solve the problem was tell him to chill out and not produce so much air, to give him a tiny adjustment in articulation, but then finally to like, act butch, you know, to, to put on some very stereotypical butch physical gestures so that the people hiring him could be reassured that he didn't read as gay. Uh, and he, he got to keep his job. And, and I got paid. But essentially, we were reinforcing these stereotypes that people have a hard time pulling mm. these things apart. And so they may hit upon that S and say, oh, no, that's a disaster. So one of the things that I do in my class is explore this idea of, of S. Uh, and uh, it started out merely as an experience. I, I, I really wanted to do sort of a sort of a Lessac-like experience where I was going to create a musical instrument with everybody's different S's. And I was going to get people lined up in the room from one side to the other, from the highest pitched S to the lowest pitched S. And then we were going to point at people like we were playing a, a hissy organ. <laughs> and uh, that's r that really was my intent when I did it. And people lined up, and it was very clear all of the women were on one side of the room and all of the men were on the other side. That the structure of men's uh, oral tracts is such that not only is the pitch of our voices about an octave lower, but our S's are significantly lower in, in, on average than women's S's are. But also that the most feminine women were the highest pitched women and the most uh, butch women were the lowest pitched women. The most feminine men were the highest pitched men, and the most masculine men, the butchest men, were uh, at, at the, the lowest level. Now, there were always some exceptions. There might be someone with unusual teeth who might be very 
feminine, but the nature of their teeth lowers their S in a way that's radically different than everybody else. Um, uh, there are, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, sexual orientation or sexual preference, but uh, that the their sort of gender identities seem to be connected. So the girls who had been cheerleaders and who wore a lot of pink growing up um, typically were the girly girls, and they, almost all of them, have very high-pitched S's. Um, and the girls who are a bit more, well, the women who are a bit more uh, um, what would be a good way of describing what the the, the feature that they, they were usually typically not the girly girl? There there could be a lot of different characteristics about what they were like, um, but they didn't fit into that small niche of of femininity, and they typically had lower pitched s's. Um, and uh, I've done that for many years now, probably about ten years now, and year in year out it does the same thing. I don't tell them in advance that it will it will identify their gender difference. We just do it like we're going to make this hissy organ and see what happens. And they immediately look at the group and go, oh my goodness, look at this. Uh, and they've never noticed it before. They would never well, have known. there are a lot of characteristics in our speech, and I'm sure in other things, that we are unconscious of. And, and so we end up yes. in in working with actors confronting this because we are presenting a particular identity. And, and uh, when it comes to students who have something that is sort of an outlier or not favored by society, uh, and and the, a very flamboyantly gay man is an example of this, that th they're going to be held back in the profession by not being able to fully transform into a butch man in a way that I am not going to be held back by not being able to do a, a sufficiently gay-sounding character. And mm -hmm. and so I find myself in this, and, and it doesn't just have to be about gayness and straightness. Uh, any feature that our students have, if they can't transform towards the more dominant culture version then they're going to be held back by that. And that is a difficult thing to right. deal with because I think until a student has really confronted and learned to love their own identity, they don't feel comfortable transforming. And our right. approach, our profession's approach, has often been to say, I'm in charge of telling you that you're bad and that you have to fix this egregious problem you have. And, and that seems like a counterproductive way of approaching things. By that, I don't mean to suggest that our students should continue to lack that skill. They should get, <laughs> they should get more skills. Uh, but we have to approach it with some sensitivity to what, what it feels like to be them. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting uh, to look at the woman's side of the equation in that uh, the young women who are... Uh, finding themselves with a high-pitched S um, are, are perhaps under less pressure because they're not being having this, well, you're, you're reading gay kind of thing hanging over them. 
but many of them, particularly if they have intentions to be serious classical actresses, they really want, they don't want to be girly girls. They want to be women. Um, and uh, they have just as much of a, a, a bias against their feminine speech, um, particularly in the theater, I think, than, than uh, the same way that men with what might be perceived as feminine speech would have a bias against it. You think of really great stage actresses. They often have very deep, yeah. rich voices, and you wouldn't accuse any of them of having a hyper-sibilant S. So it's, a, it's an interesting yeah, I part think of the recipe. True that I, I recently had a couple of stu students. We were working on a uh, Shakespeare play in a in a barn, actually, <laughs> and the those S's were really, really a problem, and they took away from the authority and power, the perceived authority and power of those characters, together with other uh, questions of pitch and. Uh, and and melody and so forth and we had a sort of like little girl thing going on and it's reasonable for an audience to say wait a minute I thought you were supposed to be the queen uh, or or for men you were supposed to not be a queen and that that and right. so we have to right. be able to be in charge of these transformations and uh, isn't it the truth that sometimes we'll We'll have an actor whose vocal presence and physical presence don't match. Or even that they're, you know, you have your gentle giant. You have, uh, I had a student a while back, really big, tall guy who looked dangerous. But he was an intellectual and, and precise and sharp and really didn't like to harm people. And uh, he had to figure out a way to take on that new identity in order to really live in the roles that he was going to get cast in. Mm. I think what that, that brings up one final thing that I want to talk about, and that, that is our responsibility to help people find themselves before we encourage them to change. And uh, so often, even at the, the audition stage, when someone's entering a theater school, uh, we'll see somebody who is, you know, from our point of view, they're struggling with their <laughs> S. They're not struggling with their S. That's just how they make their S. That's their S. And I, I, I kind of feel like we have to give them time to own their own things before we start mucking around and asking them to change who they are. To say, this is who I am. Let me play a role that's close to who I am. Let me do something with a great sense of success about way, the way I do what I do and not have to change yet. Nobody else is having to change just because I am the way I am and I'm not the mainstream. Don't ask me to change when nobody else is having to change on this first exercise. Yeah. Let me just be me. Let me do a piece that's right for my hit, my background. And then... Once we got our grounded a little bit, then let's start playing around with, okay, the industry is going to expect me to have to play straight. The industry is going to put these demands on me. Okay, I will work on that. But give me a chance Yeah, to I think land that's absolutely first. true. And I think that uh, we need to forestall the, uh, the counter-argument, uh, which I can hear ringing in my ears, usually not from my fellow voice and speech professionals, but from acting folks. 
It's the problem with that guy's speech is unimportant, uninteresting, and the worst thing in the world, and I can't stop listening to it, and you've got to fix it. Uh, the fact and they'll never work. And they'll never work. Instead of, first of all, we don't know how they're going to work, and it's really something for them to figure out. But then also, you're absolutely right. We, we're dealing with a human being, and it's not our job to take over their choice-making. Now, I, I do think that an actor who has, who is going to end up using a very different style in speech, let's say, from what they grew up with, if they are going to be doing that a lot, yes, they do need to practice it. There's, there's a lot of work to be done. And, but really, yes. uh, here, here's an example of uh, people who say uh, PN for P-E-N. So they do eh sounds as I sounds. I find students have a hard time dealing with that. Uh, the students who are already aware of it and have been yelled at it through their undergraduate training have a hard time dealing with it. The students who never knew there was a different way of dealing with it sometimes actually fix it sooner because they're being uh, confronted with it in a way that makes them curious rather than ashamed. Mm. I believe we've come to the end of our... Our rambles uh, well, today. I think we have. Yes, <laughs> we have. So, uh, well, thanks a lot for for joining in on our conversation. Is it um, possible that we should mention that uh, as we enter the summer months, I I'm going to be going away to uh, a Shakespeare festival with questionable internet access, and so it's possible we might need to take a little bit of a break. Uh, and uh, then if there are people clamoring yes. to hear more, then we'll at least know our audience is out there. And if that audience wants to reach us, they can email us at glossonomia at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an audio recording, and we might be able to include you in a future show, or just give us some feedback on how, how you think the show is going. Um, uh, I have some family stuff around some health issues going coming up, so it's quite likely that we will have a hiatus in the coming weeks. So uh, uh, until we next meet again, which we don't know when that will be, uh, we, we do know that we will do this again. So uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And, uh, thanks, Phil. <laughs>